Welcome to the podcast series of the Winning Peace Conference, which will take place on the 11th and 12th October 2018 at the German Federal Foreign Office in Berlin. You can find info about the registration program and invited speakers on our website win-peace-conference.berlin. The link is in the description of the podcast. Today, today's guest is Joan Beaumont, and we will talk about her work on the history of Australia in the First World War and its culture of remembrance. Joan Beaumont is Professor Emerita in the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University, and one of her latest books, Broken Nations, Australians in the Great War, published in 2013, gained international attention for its careful deconstruction of many so-called Anzac myths. Hello, Joan, and thank you for being here today. Hello, my pleasure. Before addressing the issue of, uh, of the Australian experience in the First World War, I would like to talk about the society before the war, actually, and I would like to know how would you describe the society before 1915-1914 and would you describe it as a peaceful and egalitarian society or rather a divided one? Yes, well, Australian society before World War One broke out was of course a very small community. It was fewer than five million people, um, the vast majority of whom were white settlers from the, the British islands. So it was very much a society that prided itself on being white and had a very strong determination to maintain what it saw at the time as being an ethnic identity. Um, in many ways, it was a society that was very innovative politically. Um, Australia was one of the first countries of the world to introduce the vote, particularly for women. And Australia also, just before World War One, had one of the first or had the first national government led by a Labour Party in the world. So it had a reputation for social innovation, uh, for a commitment to maintaining a very high standard of living by putting a floor under wages, the so-called basic wage. So in many ways it was there was a consensus around these core values of what we would call white Australia and maintaining a high standard of living for all. But that said, there were a lot of tensions, particularly between uh, the industrial labour movement, the trade unions and the political parties that would erupt regularly in massive strike action by the trade unions. And probably the other great division, which again came out very um, strikingly in World War One, was between Catholics and Protestants. So there was a deep sectarianism um, underpinning Australian political and social life. And how would you describe the, the, the way, the, the collective identity of the Australian, if I can say, of the Australian nation, if it's, it's, it, it's probably too early to say? Yes, well, Australia, of course, wasn't technically a nation at that stage. It was a dominion um, within the British Empire. And as I've mentioned, the vast majority of Australians, perhaps over 95%, um, were of Anglo-Celtic origin. And the way in which they described themselves was, was encapsulated very well by one of our early prime ministers, Alfred Deakin, who described Australians as being independent Australian Britons. So it's, it, was a, it sounds very contradictory, but in fact Australians could maintain 
at the same time a consciousness of being quite distinct from Britain, but also being deeply loyal to the British and uh, very closely aligned with the British Empire. So Australians of the pre-1914 period generally identified very strongly with the culture, the political institutions and the values of Great Britain. But at the same time, um, they had a sense that the British, of course, many thousands of kilometres on the other side of the world, did not fully appreciate what were Australia's distinctive interests within uh, the South West Pacific region. So Australians often call Britain the mother country. And in many ways, it's best to understand the relationship almost as a family relationship. Um, often the cartoonists of the time, and even as, as late as World War II, would depict the dominions of the British Empire as being like lion cubs. So there's the great big lion of, of Great Britain and the cubs who will always be loyal to mother. But even though there was that great loyalty. I think the family image works because within families there's also a lot of tensions. <laughs> Most families both love and hate each other and that was somewhat true of the Australian-British relationship. Even to this day, you could say that. In this big family, as the modern nation decided to go to war and didn't consult uh, the Australian government, even though there there have been a constitution in 1901 uh, stating that the national government of Australia would have power over external affairs. Uh, how did um, the children of uh, England um, uh, react to the entry into war, which was de facto uh, and uh, the case that Australia... Well, there are a number of points there. You're right that when the Australian Constitution was uh, formed in 1901, and perhaps we need to explain that Australia prior to that had been a, a number of colonies which joined together in a federation in 1901 to become Australia. The Constitution stated that the federal government, Commonwealth government, had power over external affairs. But that didn't actually mean foreign policy, as one might think. It simply meant that the federal government had the right and responsibility to deal with the British government, the, the, um, the home government in London. And it was accepted by both Australia and at that time Canada and other dominions of the British Empire that the conduct of foreign policy remained the responsibility of the government in London. So there was this idea that there was a foreign policy for the whole British Empire. And so Legally, Australia did not have the right either to declare war itself or to challenge Britain's decision to go to war. So in August 1914, when Britain declared war on Germany, it declared war on behalf of the whole of the empire, including Australia and other dominions. Now, you ask what the reaction to that was. Well, generally, um, it was accepted without complaint. Indeed, uh, the Australian government was very eager to offer troops and other support to the British government. It did so before the 4th of August, the day of the declaration of war. And Australia, like many other countries, saw you know, that great rush to arms in the first months of the war. Um, 52,000 men had volunteered in the first few months of the war, even though the Australian government had only promised the British government 20,000 men. 
because of the very um, rather strange constitutional arrangements within the British Empire, um, Australia did not have the right to declare war or to resist or reject Britain's declaration of war, but could decide how enthusiastically it supported the war. And the Australian government very rapidly uh, made a very generous um, offer of, of military troops and agreed to finance them throughout the war. And that decision was accepted with not much dissent within Australia. Um, both political parties accepted that as a, as a reasonable decision. And you mentioned an army of 42,000 men, and uh, it is actually a rather small army for five million. Oh, well that, that was only at the beginning. In, when war broke out, um, Australia didn't ha actually have a very large army. Um, and the decision was made that they would raise an army by calling on volunteers for the special purpose of going to war. And originally, the Australian government offered the British 20,000 men. Within three months, they had 52,000 men. But by the end of the war, um, 330,000, that would be many times more than they originally applied, had volunteered. And one of the most important things about Australia and what affects so profoundly the development of the later Anzac myth, as it's called, is that All of the men who volunteer, who served in World War One were volunteers. In the middle of the war, the um, Australian government tried to introduce conscription to replace the losses on the Western Front and had to put the matter of conscription to the popular vote in referenda. And it did so twice, and both times the Australian public rejected conscription. They did not actually reject the war. Again, it was quite, it was quite a sophisticated debate in Australia. Um, Australians differentiated between compelling men to fight and the legitimacy of the war. And so they um, continued throughout the war to only have volunteers in the Australian army. And this army, the, 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 the first engagement of this army was, um, well, took place in April 1915 in the so-called Gallipoli campaign in Turkey. And, um, <clears throat> well, I, I would like to talk about the way we remember, or Australians remember, this first engagement and the place it takes in uh, present-day culture in Australia. And um, to introduce the topic, I would like to, to read a small excerpt of a text published by the Australian Army on its website. And I would like to hear your reaction, if you're okay. So I quote... <clears throat> The Gallipoli campaign was a heroic but costly failure and by December plans were drawn up to evacuate the entire force from Gallipoli. While the campaign is considered a military failure, Gallipoli became a household name in Australia and with it the Anzac tradition was created. Gallipoli became the common tie forge in, in adversity that bound the colonies and people of Australia into a nation. So do you share the idea that Australian nation has been forged in adversity during the Gallipoli campaign? Well, I wouldn't say I share that view, but it is certainly the essence of the Anzac narrative, which is that it was at Gallipoli that the Australian nation first uh, started to take form. 
because as I explained earlier, even though Australia had become a federation in 1901, it was still in many senses um, subordinate to the government in London. So the sense of being a nation had begun to evolve, but it was undoubtedly given enormous impetus by the um, Gallipoli campaign. And we could talk a long time as to why that was so, but the landing in Gallipoli was reported in very complimentary terms, almost euphoric terms, by two journalists who happened to be there, one of whom was Charles Bean, an Australian. And it seems that um, this struck an extremely responsive chord in the Australian public. It was almost as if the Australian public had been waiting to hear something very heroic, to have a, a narrative that could become, as it did, almost the foundational narrative of Australian identity. And I think um, very early in 1916, people are beginning to talk about Gallipoli being the foundation of the nation. And that explanation of the significance of Gallipoli or that um, attribution of significance to Gallipoli is given, I think, a great um, importance also because the casualties for Australia were so high in World War One. And what I mean by that is that um, Australia probably suffered one of the highest casualty rates proportionately of any of the armies of the British Empire. Um, of The population was fewer than 5 million and about 62,000 men were killed in the war. So it was had a huge impact on Australian society. And one of the reasons why this very heroic myth about Australia's performance in World War One, I, I think, takes off, gains such life, it's because there was this mass grief in the society and it, it had to be, I think, assuaged by giving that loss some meaning. So the heroic narrative, I think, helped many Australians to make sense or to, in some sense, tolerate the huge losses. And I've often thought that, you know, for a society like Germany, which when the war ended in defeat, those losses must have been virtually impossible to explain or to, to make tolerable. And um, Charles Bean, he was a journalist during the war, but after the war he began writing the history of the war. And um, could you present his work and the impact his work has had on uh, the way Australians um, remember the war. Yes, well, Bean had an extraordinary influence, so much so that a suburb of the national capital has just been named after him. Um, as you say, he was a, uh, an official war correspondent, and then he was commissioned by the Australian government to write the so-called official history of Australia's experience in World War One, And he... He coordinated the publication of a 12-volume history of the war and wrote six volumes himself. He also played a very major role in creating our major memorial and museum to war, the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. But much more important than, than what he actually did was the, the story, essentially, that he told about Australians in World War One. And it was Bean that, that really articulated for the first time the key elements of this Anzac legend. 
And to put it very simply, basically the Anzac legend says that the Australian soldier was an exceptional fighter. And um, at its best, the Anzac legend would say the Australian fighter was the best of the whole of World War I. Um, and as being argued, Australian men made natural fighters. They were naturally good fighters because of a number of things. One was that they had been influenced by um, the sort of country lifestyle, what we would call the bush. That is, they had learnt to be resourceful, to deal with adversity, to take initiative uh, in order to survive in the very harsh climate of, of Australia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And because they had these skills of being independent of spirit, resourceful, they, they knew how to fight. Also, he, would, he argued that Australia was, as he said, almost classless, lacking in class divisions. It wasn't the case, but he, he argued that this was so. And he said because of this egalitarianism, Australians always challenged authority. So they made thinking soldiers. They were not like the British soldier who just did anything that their officer um, top officers told them to do. Australians always challenged authority, and indeed they did. I mean, they were notorious for refusing to salute officers, and the Australian armies had astronomically high rates of being absent without leave. They were very badly disciplined. But the, the Anzac legend would say it's because they're badly disciplined that they make great soldiers, because they are driven by their own motivation, and they're not just pliant and subordinate to their officers. So essentially the Anzac legend uh, says that the Australian soldier was a, um, exceptionally good because of the society from which he came, which was an egalitarian society. And most importantly, the key element of all that being argued was that Australian soldiers fought because of this quality called mateship. Now, mateship is an Australian term for what in other cultures might be described as comradeship. But the idea is that in the Anzac legend is that Australians would do anything in battle to support their mates. And that one of the reasons that they fought so tenaciously was because they had this extraordinarily strong bond, which came from the society, the social background um, that had, gen uh, had produced them. So they're probably the main elements of the Anzac legend. Yeah. So the element of the Anzac legend are still alive today and how come that they lasted so long? Yes, well that's a fascinating question and one that many of us have spent a lot of time discussing in recent years because the Anzac legend was very powerful in the first half of the 20th century but then came under very severe critique, particularly during the Vietnam War which again was very controversial in Australia because of the use of conscription. And in my university days, we all thought the Anzac legend would uh, fade, die away. It was being criticised as being very conservative, very misogynist, you know, it was a legend of white men and would become anachronistic. But in fact, in recent years, it has experienced an extraordinary revival and so much so that it is now often said that Anzac is what it means to be Australian, what it means to be Australian. That's what a conservative politician of recent years said. And uh, I think to explain that, we have to look at a whole mix of factors, one of which is, of course, being the 
um, desire of governments for the last 20 to 30 years to fi find a, a narrative about, about the past which they think will unify Australians. Um, that's debatable, but they have believed that this is a narrative that can in many ways also not only unify Australians, but perhaps unify them around the old Australia, the old Anglo-Saxon Australia, because, of course, Australia has changed profoundly in my lifetime. And we now have an incredibly multicultural society. So the resilience of this narrative of white men is quite difficult to explain. Um, but in as well as a lot, there being a lot of government investment in um, resuscitating and maintaining the Anzac legend, it seems that there's been a, a number of groups in Australia for whom the Anzac legend still has very powerful meaning. And they are um, not just the kinds of groups on the conservative side of politics, as you would find in every country today, um, not just the far right, but in many cases, families. Australia, like many other countries, has seen an extraordinary boom in family history in recent years. And so we've seen an enormous number of people trying to track the history of their particular ancestor, their grandfather or the great-grandfather, and position his story within this national narrative of Anzac. Now, I, I've thought a lot about this, and I think in many ways one of the reasons why for Australian governments the Anzac legend continues to be so important is because it is a way of firstly um, honouring those citizens who choose to surrender their own security and lives for the sake of the common good. Because I mentioned earlier that all World War I soldiers were volunteers. And so the myth of Anzac is a myth of the volunteer. It's the myth of the citizen who chooses to be a soldier or who chooses to subordinate his or her interests to those of the nation. And although we have a very small number of people in Australia today who choose to serve in the military. That notion that you can call on people to sacrifice their lives for the nation's good is still fundamental as far as the nation state is concerned. And why I argue that is because often you'll find that Anz the term Anzac is not just used to describe soldiers, it's used to describe police officers who are shot in, act, uh, in their um, duty even people fighting bushfires and sometimes victims of terrorism. So to be an Anzac is in some ways to be somebody who serves the common good. And I think you can argue that as Australia's become much more materialistic and individualistic, that idea of, of sacrifice still is deemed to be very important by um, political authorities and other authorities as well. Just a very quick question there. Anzac, it does not only refer to Australian soldiers, but also to soldiers from New Zealand. How are they, how are they remembered in this whole Anzac legend and mythology? 
Well, again, um, that's a, a complex question. Australians do have a, um, a quite persistent tendency to forget the New Zealanders. I sometimes joke that um, all we think is that the NZ provides some quite useful consonants in the name. I mean, people have often commented on what a great name it is, Anzac. You know, it's a really excellent sort of, it's got a great ring to it, which you wouldn't have without the NZ. Um, but being more serious, uh, for the New Zealanders, um, the Anzac legend is also very important. Um, both countries celebrate what is called Anzac Day, which is the 25th of April, the landing at Gallipoli in, in 1915. And um, they celebrate it jointly. So the embassies overseas would, would join together in celebrating Anzac Day. But I think it is generally accepted that the extraordinary emphasis that has been placed on Anzac and Anzac and the memory of war generally in Australia in the last 20 years of the memory boom is not mirrored to the same extent in New Zealand. It's not it's not as big a phenomenon uh, in the New Zealand political culture as it is in Australia. And this is in Australia a huge uh, a huge element of uh, the narrative, the national narrative. And um, from 2014 to 2018, um, the Australian government has spent a huge amount of money on the centenary of the First World War. We talk about over $500 million. And it is by far the biggest sums, sums spent by any country for the, for the centenary. Um, from your point of view as a historian who has been working on this subject for many years now, is there a good opportunity to talk about uh, the Anzac legend and to make the broader public aware of your work? Or, or is it rather challenging for... Well, uh, there's been a number of different responses, if I can put it that way. You are right that there has been a greater um, openness to new histories of World War One. My own book enjoyed quite a lot of success because of the commemoration of the war. Um, but much to the frustration of many historians in Australia, it seems that the way in which we have, uh, or at least publicly, the war, the centenary of the war has been commemorated, has been much more, if I can put it this way, a function of memory than of history. That is, there is a tendency, very strong tendency in Australia for the war to be remembered at the popular level in a way really that tells us more about what Australians want to believe happened rather than what happened. And I'll give you an example. Only this year, um, earlier this year, 2018, the Australian government opened a new museum at the French town of Villers-Bretonneux, where Australian forces um, had a quite striking tactical success as it happened on the 25th of April, this time in 1918. And to commemorate the centenary of that, the Australian government spent, wait for it, 100 million on a new museum, even though there was already a national memorial there and there are other museums held, um, offered by the French. 
And when that museum was opened this year, our Prime Minister spoke of the extraordinary achievement um, in this Battle of villers bretonneux of a general called General Sir John Monash. Now, Monash is a very famous um, military commander in Australia, and he has acquired almost iconic status during all this war memory boom. The only problem was that Monash simply hadn't been at villers bretonneux but the Prime Minister um, didn't seem to know that, or whoever wrote his speech did not seem to know that. Now, the point of the story is that anybody who knew who had read one of the military histories of the war would have known that Monash, whatever his achievements, did not happen to be at villers bretonneux But because Monash is being so celebrated, it didn't really matter whether he'd been there or not. He, and this led me, as I said, to argue publicly that, that we've got to the stage where the narrative of the war is what, what people want it to be rather than what it was. And Australians, I think, um, have had a... Um, a lamentable tendency to continue to um, understand the history of World War One entirely from the Australian perspective, whereas the tendency in Europe, and I know we have this conference that is um, coming in October, is to increasingly view the world as a transnational, the war as a transnational phenomenon, and understand it in that way. Um, Australian commemoration has continued to see the war almost exclusively from the Australian perspective. So that in the gallery in the Australian War Memorial, the Battle of Passchendaele, or Third Ypres, seems to finish on the day the Australian troops were withdrawn, not when the battle actually finished. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, John, for this very interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing you talking about this at a Winning Peace conference in Berlin next October on the 11th and 12th. You can find more information about the registration procedure and the conference in general on our website, win-peace-conference.berlin. Thank you, Joan. Good. Thank you very much.